0: Hello everyone, welcome back to The Early Education Show, we're here with episode 98. I'm Liam.
1: I'm Lisa. And I'm Leanne.
0: And the whole game is oh, back yeah. together. That's oh. so, I love these episodes when we're all together.
1: It's so nice. Feels like an old comfortable shoe, doesn't it?
0: <laughs> That's the nicest thing anyone said about me in a long time, <laughs> do so mean thank you, Leanne.
1: Do you mean that it smells?
0: <laughs> <laughs>
2: no,
1: it's just comfortable to walk off. Lisa Bryant. <sighs> Sorry. Um,
0: So we're going to be, we're looking forward to the conversation tonight. We're going to be talking with Tamika Hicks, who's been on the podcast before, uh, and we're going to be talking about how to ethically operate a for-profit service for for young children. I'm really looking forward to this one, actually. This is a big conversation uh, we've been having as a a podcast, I think, for quite a while. Um, Just a couple of quick things before we, I think we're going to do a bit of background about the private sector as well before we do that, but um, just a reminder to everyone, the Exploring the NQS series is continuing. We've got uh, Element 3.1.2 up now, and if you're supporting the show, um, you can grab access to that and all the elements leading up to that one so we're, we're barreling along with uh, Interquality Area 3 now. It's um, I just have to remember to do oh, it every you, week. Do
2: you reckon you'll finish it? Or? Well, it's
0: going to be done this year. The problem is I probably should have done this once a fortnight. It's going to be over really, really quickly but um, I hope people enjoy oh, it and I'm enjoying doing them. I've just got to remember to do them and get them out before Tuesday. That was a mild scare last week but it's all done. it was all out there. Um, so I think before we go to that interview with Tamika, I think certainly uh, and, and you two both have a far better understanding of this background of the history of the of the, I guess, the the, the growth of the private sector um, in in early education. I mean, I think, uh, Leanne, you had some very well-prepared research that you emailed to me earlier this day. Do you want to maybe take us through that before we then, you know, we, we sort of bring Tamika into the conversation? I'd be
1: very happy to. Thank you, Liam. And then I will throw to Lisa, who I know has lots of exciting stuff to say as well. Um, Now, the reason that I kind of cast my mind back to this, because I often think of the lived experience of um, policy changes and what that felt like. And I guess that is because I am an ageing person who has experienced (laughs) some of these things. Not all of them, mind you, because my story starts in 1972, when I was a mere, very young primary school her. So I'm not going to say that I lived this part of the experience but I will take you through just a quick sort of step through of the changes in policy that led to where we are today and Lisa's going to take up part of that as well. So in 1972 the Child Care Act was introduced and the Commonwealth actually took some responsibility on for child care. So that was actually under a Liberal government and uh, that was, you know, that, was, um, that really sort of changed the thinking. And this was all about equity for women. Uh, and moving into 1983, it was all, all about equity, all about, uh, you know, creating an environment where women could work. So that was that 1972 to 1983 period. And then I'm going to jump forward to 1990, when there was an announcement for fee relief to the for-profit sector, plus the announcement of a system of accreditation. So that was the first the first time that we sort of saw that there was going to be this extension of Fair Relief um, to everybody who was using a, a centre, regardless of whether it was um, for profit or not for profit. And there was quite a lot of opposition to accreditation. And this opposition actually did come from the private sector. And things have changed significantly over time. And, and I guess I'm sort of remembering the time when we were delivering the training around um, accreditation for the very first time and the private sector sat on one side of the room and the uh, not-for-profit sector sat on the other side of the room and there were some really interesting interactions in that so time. they didn't was, want to be accredited? Um, this was uh, I wouldn't say it was all but it was definitely a very large portion of what was existing at that time in the private sector <clears throat> with uh, maybe not Uh, a complete understanding that that was one of the requirements of um, taking part in fee relief as well. So this is where in 1994 there was this concept of quality that was emerging. So they were the first discussions around quality, despite the fact that there had been regulations in states over time. And in 1997, Howard removed operational subsidies for the uh, not-for-profit community sector, community sector, yeah. But I am going to say Paul Keating thought the idea up, so there's a shared responsibility there for mo- removing that. And the idea hits. The, the idea. Are there monkeys in the stalls there, Liam? That we need to give some peanuts <laughs> to. Um, and that that was the idea was to create an equal playing field. So that was. That was what the idea was in removing the operational subsidies. So, Leanne, <laughs> why was that a thing for Keating? Um, I think it was just budget cuts. Just wanted to right, take some... Okay. And, and this idea of, yeah, I mean, it really was all, all about money, wasn't it? And I think they were trying to work out how to balance um, things out and make it, make it like everybody was equal. So nobody had any unfair advantages. And then between 91 and 2003, the number of for-profit places quadrupled. So there was a massive, um, a massive increase with the era of market forces. And the, the narrative at this time, as this was progressing, was quality is expensive. It's too expensive. We need to cut back regulation and accreditation because it's too expensive.
0: Oh, phew. That means, um, luckily, lucky we don't have that narrative anymore. Whew.
1: Yeah. <laughs> Now, we have to say there were incredible people along the way, but the one that I sort of hold really close in this um, particular debate was June Wangman, who held on to the quality story for such a long, you know, she just really pushed through on that quality and she educated, Quentin Bryce will say she educated her on quality and told her it doesn't matter whether you have lots and lots of childcare. If it's poor quality, then you may as well not have it at all. So I think that was a, you know, that was her story. The business discourse entered, entered uh, the fray at this time, and it was all about quality and accountability. And there was subsidies, but only if you could be accountable and only if you could prove you had quality. And it was obviously trying to solve that supply-demand issue. You know, we expand the sector. And uh, the market takes over and then the supply and demand is is basically solved. We know that's really worked, don't we? And in 2001, the corporatisation led to ABC being listed on the stock exchange. The rest is history. There's such an interesting history around that, which we probably don't need to go into. And uh, now in 2018, the for-profit sector makes up 47% of Um, The uh, services across Australia. So I was thinking that it was actually... Is that all service types? Yeah, that's all service types, okay. And um, when, I guess when I was first in early childhood education, the split was about 20% um, for-profit, 80% community. That changed with ABC and it was much greater, but now, of course, we have Good Start who took on those services, so that's that's pulled it back somewhat, and now it's sitting at forty-seven percent. And now I think that you've got some more fun facts, Lisa. So I'm going to hand over to you. Look, yeah,
2: I just had some facts about family day care services because, unlike other service types, family day care was, pres- um, you know, was stayed as a not-for-profit for a lot longer. So that in 2011, we had 30 percent of family daycare services were community based, not for profit. Thirty-one percent were run by governments and only thirty-nine percent were for profit mm. and the number of services kind of remained pretty stable from nineteen seventies up until about two thousand and eleven. And then in the next five years, there was a huge jump, 132% jump in the number of services and family daycare services, and all the new ones were for profit. And there was a lot of government policy that encouraged that huge growth in for-profit family daycare. So, um, you know, uh, there was things like the community support program, which provided operational funds and startup assistance um, to family daycare. But interestingly, all of those thing, all of the things that helped the private sector to to start in family daycare, started a lot before, like five or six years before the big jump in the growth in growth. So it's interesting that like it's kind of like some of those things come in and it takes a while for for-profit services to see, you know, the possibilities of making money and then um, doing it. But now we have a situation where even though a lot of dodgy um, for-profit family daycare services were closed and there was also a huge contraction in the sector overall, um now 71% of services are for profit 17% are community based and just 12% are run by government so that's, that's a that's it's an astounding a huge
1: statistic
2: change. isn't it yeah and it's like you know in I, I can speak for new south wales like a lot of councils moved out of provision and a lot of community-based services um, merged because they'd lost their basic funding, um, the community support program funding that they needed to survive or for it to be a viable kind of, you know, um, service. And the reason that was taken was because um, governments were saying, "Yeah, oh, look what the dodgy providers are doing. You know, with this money, or look how they its encouraging the spread of dodgy providers. But in so doing, like, so the government both set up the for uh, for-profit sector to come in, and then took the money and away gave, that supported the not-for-profit.
1: Yeah, sector. and gave lots of um, startup-type grants, didn't they? And and also even some uh, operational money for coordination. Yep, for sure. Mm. Which was eventually taken away.
2: Yeah, mm-hmm. but it just shows how you know government, um, like government actions, can change the
1: mix of a sector so rapidly. Yeah, and it's a, and it's also the answer to all of the problems. Is you know you can't possibly um, create uh, cope with the demand. Therefore, you just kind of open up the market, and the market will decide.
0: Let the yeah, market and- win.
1: And, and like, that was very
2: much the case with family daycare that where they just said they were getting really bad press because of all the, you know, there's not enough childcare spaces, you've got to go on a waiting list five years beforehand. So they, you know, went, well, what can we ramp up quickly? And it was family daycare because it doesn't need premises to deal with. And so they put all these incentives in and, funny... Some of the people that came and took up those incentives were dodgy.
1: Yes, that's right. And that, and not to mention all of the fraud, which we've spoken about before.
0: Yeah. Rort alert.
1: Mm, yeah.
0: <laughs> well... Thank, thank you both for that um, background. I think it, I always find that so fascinating, where it's you know it's, it's a combination of multiple decisions of multiple governments that have sort of led us to this state. But I think it's a good background for the chat we wanted to have. And I should say this: I think this topic and and uh, the interviewee was my suggestion. So I think over the course of this podcast, we're, we're about to crack you know the, the triple figures, hundred. We we're all of us are proudly you know not supporters of not for profit. And I think we all, um, I don't want to speak for all three, but I think we would all just agree that that's the the ethically strongest way to operate services. For children, is in a not-for-profit uh, capacity, but I think we should say that's not. But that's not the sector, as you sort of say. Forty-seven percent of the sector is for profit, and one of the things we all know is that we know individuals who run for-profit services that are high quality and are operated ethically. And I know there are listeners to this podcast who who operate in that for-profit space. So I think we should always say we. Um, uh, we, we sort of separate the individuals who are maybe operating in that space from the, the overall philosophical approach and what so the, the, the question I sort of posed to, uh, to, to Mika in sort of setting up this interview was you know how you know how do or how do you approach operating uh, uh, how, do you, how do you approach ethically operating a for-profit service which I think um, really gets into that nice um, crossover of those issues is that this is the sector we operate in then um, there are ethical ways of operating uh, in that for-profit. Um, service so uh...
1: and there, there is a very big difference between corporatized um, child care so to speak and and you know there, there are various ways of going about this and I think that that probably is the one that's been our our target for the greatest criticism um, is the the big corporate provision which is not about which is not about children yeah, or yeah, the private
2: equity provision, which it likewise isn't about children. They could be anything that they were selling. One of the things that I face, and I know you two face it as well, is often criticism from small, um, what we used to call mar and par operations, which is a horrible name. I'm not sure how it ever started. But small family-run um, long-day cares who object to me saying, care shouldn't, you know, early education care should not be operated for profit. And they say, we're not for profit. Don't call us for profit. Call us, call us private. And I insist upon saying for profit care, while acknowledging that some of those services may not ever make a profit because it's not their existence. That I object to. It's the existence of a system that allows early ed- education to be operated on a for-profit level. Does that make sense? The
1: distinction.
0: Yeah, I, um, I yeah, think.
1: I think I think that's hard though. That's hard to understand, and especially when we also, um, you know, as Liam says, we are, are admirers of some wonderful centres and operators and so it is, it, it's probably hard for people to understand that position that well, we take but anyway yeah.
0: Well I think this is, you know, that we also want to make sure we the, some of these top these discussion points will be great to have with Tamika so we probably want to, we've, we've set the stage really well there so thank we, I should say you too, so thank you very much for the setting of the stage but we'll take a really quick break and then we'll be back with Tamika Hicks to talk about how to ethically operate a for-profit service so stay with us mm-hmm. All right, everyone, welcome back. And we're very excited to be joined now by Tamika Hicks. Tamika, welcome, I should say, back to the Early Education Show. You were on one of our earlier episodes talking about the Jobs for Families package, the wash-up of that. We we had a commiserating phone call about how depressed we were about that. But welcome back to the show.
3: I know, and I feel like um, it's an endless hamster wheel.
0: I, that topic. I, I, I know how you feel. We might have <laughs> to. It doesn't
1: go away, that's for sure. No,
3: it doesn't.
0: We hadn't planned to touch briefly on that, but maybe we should. But um, look, Tamika, this is your first long, long form interview on the show. We're really excited to have you. This is a topic I've been wanting to tackle for a really long time. We've sort of talked about in the intro that, you know, we're, we're obviously a big. Um, advocates for -for not-for-profit provision of early education and care but we know there are some really fantastic providers of uh, standalone for-profits and you would be you know one of the exact people I was talking about we've known you I think all three of us have known you for quite a quite a long time as a as an amazing advocate but I'm uh, why don't you tell us a bit about your your background in in the sector?
3: So I, I, I was never meant well I shouldn't say never meant I was it was never in my plan to work in early childhood. I stumbled into early childhood in what was my gap year and that was 19 years ago. So I'd done two years of my early childhood degree and then I had a year off and I thought I'm moving to the big smoke from Tasmania. I moved to Melbourne and I got a job in a a small um, family owned and operated service in Melbourne and then moved into a few other different roles and that was it I never went back unfortunately big regret but I never went back to finish my degree and I did my diploma and advanced diploma and stayed in early childhood because I just found that that was my niche and and I was very passionate very quickly about working with young children in early years. You found your home. I did I found my home and and then I've done a few other roles along the way. I've worked um, in the tape sector twice, so I've done. I've gone back for two stints in that, having a little bit of a break, and um, I found that very rewarding to be able to um, impart knowledge and share experience and and different things that have happened along the way, and incorporate that in the teaching, which I found very um, very rewarding and. And I've worked at uh, United Voice as an organizer and a, a director organizer for I think three. I think I've been back at United Voice for three stints, which has been again very rewarding, and um, I've learned a lot of a lot of uh, skills from that role. And um, as a ministerial advisor, which is probably the highlight of my career so far in early years for Minister Jenny Makarkos and working for her, um, it was for nine to 10 months, but it felt like a lot longer, but the duration of time felt like nine minutes. Everything was packed in and it was very fast paced and we got a lot of work done in that time. And I have to hand it to, um, I met Jenny Makakos in particular, but all ministers at how hard they work and how it is such a relentless um, thankless in some instances, in most instances, job, but that was a very um, very rewarding experience. So I've, I've been very fortunate in my 19 years of early childhood to be um, to have worked in quite a number of different roles, which has just um, yeah got me to where I am today such a diversity there I'm I'm actually interested in what kind of
1: drives you because you've covered a lot of different areas of the sector as so many people do and I think we all have as well but what's what's your kind of main drive there what's your kind of mission that you're undertaking
3: yeah well it's been a a big focal point for me over the last couple of months Um, you know what's what is in store for me and what is my plan for the next five years but I keep coming back to policy and I keep coming back to um, I'm on uh, the Women's Policy Committee for the Labor Party here in Victoria and we've got um, had such a a success in the last four years with the policy that we've done that has got to platform and become part of election commitments and and that work has, has been a big driver for me. So I think that's going to be one of my main focus focus points for the next four years is continuing on with that policy committee and also working within the education policy committee as well. But I also see a big gap between um, women's policy committee, early childhood and also health. So I'm um, a bit split at the moment whether I put my hand back up for Women's Policy Committee or whether I take a step out of that and then try and get in on the Health Policy Committee. But it's a very competitive process and um, I've just got to um, put my hand up and I've always been one for, you know, if a door opens go, you know, go through that door and see where it takes you. Sometimes there are lots of doors open and I do overload myself sometimes. But, <laughs> there's um, too many doors. But, um, exactly. There's doors everywhere. Um, so policy is definitely um, something that drives me and something that I see myself doing a lot more of over the next, you know, four to five years in my
2: life. Even career. though it's such like, it's such hard work.
3: Um, yeah, well, yeah, yeah, like, it
2: is. It, et cetera.
3: I like that. I like keeping busy. I'm not one for sitting still for too for too long. Um, I mean, it, all policy committees. It's a voluntary role. You do a lot of um, community consultation. You get out and talk to a lot of community groups. But I've, it's something that I really enjoy, and and it's one of the reasons why I um, wanted to go back to owning and running my own centre because I then get the flexibility to be able to do that and um, also keep my uh, foot in the door of of being able to just go to work and go into the rooms and enjoy the program. Tell us a bit about your centre. Cardinia, it's Cardinia Lake CLC, yeah. isn't it? Cardinia Lake CLC. So we're located out in Pakenham, which is about an hour and a half um, southeast of Melbourne. It's um, in a very big growth area. We've got um, we've got quite a diverse range of families at the centre. We're um, we're about seventeen, I think. We're seventeen months old, so we're still fairly new. It's uh, been a very, very busy 17 months getting the right team together, um, engaging with the community. The community's new and growing, so um, those relationships have been very important and strong from the start we've got a new school that's just opened this year across the road and and building relationships with the principal and the and the teachers there a lot of our children from kinder last year went to prep at the school across the road there's a sessional kinder and maternal health across the road as well so you know building great relationships with with them it's it's been um we had assessment and rating, I think we are about nine nine months and we got exceeding in our partnerships with families oh, in the community because Thanks. it's just something that we've been really focusing on getting right from the start and making sure that with every new family that comes through the door and and, you know, even down to the Local bakery and and the news agency, you know, building those relationships and and making sure that we've got that real sense of community.
0: That's Fantastic, that's great.
1: Congratulations, and, yeah, congratulations. Yeah. That's great
0: to me. Thank so, you, Tamika Thanks right. to you're both the approved provider and the nominated supervisor. Would that be right? Yes. Okay. So this question yes. is pretty simple, Tamika. Uh, why would you do that to yourself uh, as someone I who know, has, no. only, has just worked we as a nominated supervisor? The only way I could possibly operate in the in the sector is by having a lot of amazing people around me who can help me do my job. And I worked as a nominated supervisor for a few years, but couldn't imagine doing that and the approved provider role? Um, at the same time, so I guess uh, mm. I, I guess it's kind of two questions. Is you know what I guess you sort of talked about why it was important for you to run your own center, but um, what's it like sort of having both of those roles at the same time?
3: Um, it, it, it can be exhausting, but I have a fantastic management team around me who have um, Carly Jess have worked in the sector for you know nearly 20 years both themselves Carly and I um worked at the last center that I had for six years and we're all we're all on the same page we all get it we all bounce off each other everything flows beautifully and I never I never have to worry when I'm not there so but I did say last time when I um I was really burnt out after I had my last centre and I took some time off and I said that I'd never do it again and I said to Carly, if I ever ring you and ask you to, you know, come in with me again on another centre, just remind me of this point that I would never do it again. But I did. I had some time off and then I had to... um, justify to her why I was doing it again just just so she knew that I was sane
2: and so every time you complain now does
3: she say I told you so I know she. yeah I know well I I'm very very fortunate that I have not had to complain um I have not had to complain this time around so I'm, I'm quite happy and we're, we're in a really good spot and we're doing some great things and and it's enjoyable to to get up and and take the drive out to Pakenham each day and and just enjoy the time with the children because it's, I think, when you do a few different roles and when you, you're seeing things happening, you you gain new perspectives that make your job a lot more enjoyable and you just see a lot more reward out of what it is you're doing and, and the conversations that you have with the team members too become a lot more enriching and Yeah, it's just it's exciting. It's it's been a very long journey getting to this point, but we're at a tipping point, a turning point, I think, and it's and it's really exciting, and it's good to be a part of, and I'm I'm excited to see what the next twelve months brings. To be honest,
0: that's great. Well, good. so Tamika, um and this is a really hard question to sort of answer in you know you in a, in, a, in a short statement, but you know the center director job I think is is really tricky and challenging in the best of circumstances, let alone when you're you know operating as the approved provider as well so how do you how what what are the key things you sort of focus on in that role what do you really um, you know when you sort of come in, in the morning or you're thinking about you know that quality improvement plan all those things that the sort of drive yeah. you? what are you really really focusing on in that role
3: well Between the three of us, so I have Jess who's our pedagogical leader and she and then I've got Carly who directs and then myself and we all take on certain roles. So Jess takes on the program and practice and um, the culture, team culture, then Carly works with the families and the administration side of things and then I work on the partnerships with families and how that's working with the team and then with the community as well. So we all have these roles which intertwine, which makes day-to-day running a lot easier and know Carly and Jess work part-time and then I come in across the week and we just seem to make it work. It just flows beautifully. It um yeah it just I think when you've got the right team and everyone's on the same page in terms of the philosophy and our vision and our goals and what the team are working towards it just seems to flow beautifully and Touch wood. Hopefully, it stays that way. I know you all you always come across some um, bumps in the road, but I think if you've got a team that are really committed, I don't think you can really go wrong.
0: Absolutely, that's great. And uh, I, I think I think a lot of people will be sort of hearing that approach of really um, having to share the load of leadership and and that idea of delegating. And I know that's. Um, uh, I'm, I'm dramatically summarising some of the incredible work you've done in that space, Leanne. But I think you know that's the idea of building up other leaders. I think is 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 really important um, in services.
3: Yeah, absolutely. You, I think, and that comes a lot too from union training. You know, a true leader isn't a leader until you've you've built up a leader, and then that leader's built up a leader. And if you've got that, if you've got that um, mindset within your team. Then, like delegation, used to be a very hard thing for me, and um, and it's only been probably the last two years that I've been able to let go of that a bit more, and 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 let people make mistakes because you know you I don't want to be doing the directing and managing forever, I want to be able to have someone come and step up into that role so I can take a bit more of a step back to work on, um, on policy and, and get more into the political side of policy making. So it, it's something that, um, you know, we've got a lot of team members at the centre who show those skills. And I think if you Really foster that within the team culture. You know, people are going to want to step up, and they're going to want to have a have a have a crack at it because they know that they're supported. You know, things don't always go the right way. You've got to learn. You've got to make mistakes to learn, and you've got to be supported when you're making those mistakes. And um, we've just got a really good we've got a really good culture at the centre to be able to manage that
1: yeah. and
3: foster it. Mm. So
1: I'm I'm interested in um, this how how you balance uh, your own sort of perspective on on profit and utilisation and all, all of those aspects of the centre because um, it's
3: is am I right It's a 120 place centre Is that right Yes yeah, So we're we're licensed for 120 but our capacity for what we believe the centre should be in terms of children in the rooms sits at around 100 105 so did you um
1: sort of consciously go into uh, i think that's very um that's fantastic that you're keeping at a number that you consider to be appropriate and Mm. working within that so then how are you kind of following through with obviously are you are you above regulation staff are you you know what sorts of things are you doing in the centre that might uh, improve early childhood education and the delivery of it but how do you balance that again with uh, the need to make some sort of living out of it
3: yeah and and it and it is a hard one and when we sit around for our management meetings we always talk about profit for purpose and you know our wages budgets are always blown out, and um, and and that's a thing that we factor in because we don't want you know to have our staff not feel valued. Um, we pay above award. We have uh, a lot of um, ECts at the centre. We have a lot of um, diplomas that are uh, training and doing their degrees. We've got like none of our Cert 3s are not doing their diploma. So we've got six Cert 3s that are doing their diploma and I think they're nearly finished. So we're always fostering high qualifications. Um, We get a lot of professional development in-house. We've got a great partnership with... um, an exercise physiologist, Robin Patworth, who comes and does some amazing PD and and is a great support for our team. Um, And I like, I find it difficult at times because I have to look at, well, it's got to pay, you know, we've got to pay the rent. We've got to make sure that everything's up to date, but then I always am looking at the quality aspect as well, because, from the get-go and when we sat down and did all of our budgeting and finances, um, I'm, I'm not doing this because I'm in it just to make the profit. I'm in this because I want to make a really good quality centre delivering outcomes that ensure that these children are going to, by the time they leave our centre, they're going to be the best that they can be and you can't, I, th- I think personally you can't have, um, like I couldn't be a full-time director and um, managing the finances um, on my own. That's why I have my management team in to make sure that that's all balanced out and we've all got the perspectives and making sure that we're staying on, on track because at times it can, obviously with every business and especially when you're self-funding a small business, Sometimes things can get overwhelming if you're not um, meeting the targets that you need to to be viable. So having that balance is really important. Mm, And it must keep you awake at night. Sometimes yes, <laughs> which brings me back to the why did I do this again? But yeah. um, the rewards the rewards outweigh those sleepless nights at times. Yeah, because um,
1: last night I was talking with a group of directors who were um, sort of ref- they were from uh, regional New South Wales and they were were reflecting on some of the strategies that uh, corporate services in the different towns were using. And that, that, you know, it was all about changing Um, the staffing structure over the day, people coming in late, um, you know, because the numbers were down, leaving early, all of those things and the sort of manipulation of of staffing rosters uh, for the benefit. And I imagine that that is um, not something that you would even consider doing, given your, your background in um, the union and, and uh, the, the rights that you feel people must have in their employment. Um, so, you know, that it must be quite a balance for you, it's sort of quite a juggle there to, to get that right.
3: Yeah, absolutely. And having started off as an untrained assistant, you always go back and think, well, you know that, and I worked in um, in some. I've worked in some corporate centres, and I've worked in some um, you know great private, um, family-owned and operated centres, and I've worked in community um, centres as well. So I've worked across all services, and and got the good, bad, and the ugly. And you always come back to it has to be quality, and those children have to have the best day. Possible, and if you're juggling and switching and shuffling, that that's not the best day possible. So we, you know, our our rostering is always done um, being mindful of that. You know, we're very careful of looking at what the day looks like, and and um, I mean we're we're very lucky as well. We've got um, we've got a great team. We've got um, Great ratios so that never really enters our mind like I think yesterday being the start of the school holidays and we had I think five or six team members away for annual leave and everyone was you know in a bit of a panic and but we're fine look look at the look at the numbers look at the staff it's yeah at times every you know you might you might get a bit flustered but we have on average two extra staff on the floor a day to accommodate staff being away, extra programming needing to be taken. So like we're very fortunate. And that and that is taken into account what our fee structure is to make sure that we can have that good balance. I mean, we'd be able to have a, a, a lot better balance if our rent wasn't so high and and all of those sorts of things I mean I can talk about that to the cows come home about how much gets taken out of quality um what could be like I mean we could have um a lot higher qualifications in every room if if we weren't spending so much money on on rent and things like that but um I think you've just got to sit down and balance everything out, and make sure that you have a really good, supportive, well qualified team to be able to to manage everything that just comes up.
1: Mm. Mm. I
2: think
3: every service and like <laughs> <that>. <laughs> I know. I know. So I think coming from I. Uh, I think it was about in 2008 I finished up at a community centre that I'd worked at for six years and my children had been little babies when they started there and our rent was $5.50 and then the next $5.50 a year, then the service that I went to next that I started up, it was an old ABC, um, abandoned ABC service service. That was like 90, <laughs> 90. Yeah, I know. I started that one up from scratch and, and that was a mammoth effort. And, and the rent there was, I think, $92,000 a year. And then out in Pakenham, it, you know, it's $320,000 a year. And that's normal. Like that's the going rate for rent. And I just think at, at what stage, you know, have we got to where, you know, that's $320,000 a year that, Educators could be getting a better wage. That's three hundred and twenty thousand dollars a year that can go towards, you know, more PD or, or you know, Tamika. That's, oh, that's three hundred
1: and twenty thousand dollars that you could take as your annual bonus. Like, me. Oh,
3: <laughs> I know, I know. Well, it'd be nice. Yeah, exactly. Well, it'd be nice. I'm, I'm not even at the point where I'm actually making a wage yet. So that that three hundred and twenty thousand dollars would be nice. But yeah. <laughs>
1: That could be your annual bonus, like we hear Uh, the, um, you know, some of the uh, CEOs and the corporate services. Yeah,
0: (laughs) Well, this might
3: imagine. Yeah,
0: well, that might Mm. be a good, um, good opportunity to sort of segue. I mean, uh, how I I can't speak for Leanne and Lisa, but how I primarily got to know you, Tamika, was as an as an advocate, um, and uh, particularly around the Big Steps campaign. Now, um, one of the uh, I think. uh, it's not a myth but one of the I think the the general things that possibly people might think about for profit services is that they 're anti union and 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 aren't necessarily involved in advocacy, but I know that 's not the case for you. So uh, can you tell us a bit about I guess your um you know I guess your 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 um your your passion for your your engagement with you know the Big Steps campaign and why as a as a you know as a provider as someone who's you know operating a service and staffing is the biggest cost. So you can yeah. even if I disagree with the view of a lot of um for profit providers that you can understand at least from a business sense why they are making that argument but that's not an argument you make like how how important is it you to be involved in those advocacy campaigns for educators?
3: Yeah, I just, I just am, I I still don't understand why more employers aren't behind union advocacy. Um, I mean, I started off, I had four years off before year 12, in between year 12 and, and going to university and I worked in a factory and I was in the manufacturers union while I was working in this carpet factory. And then When I moved into early childhood, it was just a natural thing that I would figure out who the union was and join that union. But I was earning more at that carpet factory than what I was um, working in early childhood. I think my hourly rate when I first started working in early childhood in 2000 was $12.47 and I was getting $16 something at the factory. And I thought, this is absurd. Like, (laughs) I've been... Working on a loom, you know, making carpet at sixteen dollars something an hour, and and twelve dollars forty seven working with these young children, and I just thought that was wrong, and that's when I started um, looking at what the union was campaigning for. And in two thousand and eight, then the big steps campaign started, and and I just didn't hesitate getting involved in that because. I had, at that time, I had my diploma and my, my advanced diploma and I was running a room and I think at that stage I was, I can't remember what the hourly rate was, but it wasn't that much more than what I'd started on. And I just thought this is ridiculous, something has to change. Like why is there such a massive gap in um, the value of what it, what it is we're doing? You, you value, you know, I, not that I dismiss factory work because it's hard work. But yeah,
2: but let's but, face it, yeah, you know, we are looking after you know living human beings.
3: Absolutely. You know? And as and as a director and as an owner, as a manager, I just think why wouldn't you be behind that campaign and why wouldn't you be supporting your staff? Because the the value and the respect needs to come not just from the workers valuing and respecting themselves but as a manager and an owner valuing your educator valuing your team in what they do and advocating not just for your team but for the children and and advocating to the families what it is that's being done so it's always but sort it's, of baffled baffled me as to for why. Some,
2: for some owners they
3: see their staff primarily as a cost and and that and and they should not be in the sector it's as simple as that. Like where where do you have a principal running a school that sees children as a cost? And this is the thing, like we have this this massive divide in provide like even the word provider, it's it irks me because we don't look at schools as providers. We see schools as educational institutions. We see early childhood as a provision and and the language that we have around early childhood is just so fundamentally flawed and and I would love for um, the new minister to get in and just change the language and change how early childhood is described Everything down to the last piece of paper that you get from Centrelink for for the language to have a whole new fresh start because um, yeah it 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 kill, it eats away at your soul every time you hear the descriptive language around early childhood. Yeah,
0: yeah. absolutely. Yeah. Well, that those those advocacy campaigns might be a good thing to. Talk about to me. So, I mean, um, I've got probably got a couple of questions. Do you? I mean, are you part? Do you sort of network or engage with other? Um, you know, people in your position where you're operating and directing your own services, you know, what are the um, you know, and how are they sort of approaching, you know, advocacy around We know that, so in particular we've been thinking recently about a lot of the advocacy around the red you know, red tape in the sector and regulation in the sector. I think again um, I'm really willing to be challenged and I don't know that many standalone providers like yourself but the, the view often that I would espouse is that, you know, that a lot of them are sort of against the national quality frame um you know is that a fair a characterization am i being a bit too generalistic there or what, do, what do you sort of think of advocacy in the for-profit or you know standalone space for things like the national quality framework
3: yeah i don't think you're being generalistic at all i find it really hard um to engage with single owner operators um on a networking level a lot of um A lot of single owner operators don't attend, like a lot of the council networking meetings. Um, uh, My networking that I do predominantly is with the union directors and a lot of the community directors and network groups uh, because I I find it very rare to stumble across um, owner operators that are willing to or engage in, in networking and um, those that I have um, fit your description, <laughs> fit, fit your generalisation. So, um, yeah, it's, it's hard and it's difficult. But I think that there is, um, I, I think that needs to be fostered and, and I'm not sure what that looks like. But, um, yeah, I th- yeah, it's a, it's a hard one.
0: Yeah, I, I, if you yeah. could just fix that for us, Tamika, that would be great. Just from the inside, <laughs> yeah. that would be oh, wonderful. How long <laughs> <has>
2: she
0: got <laughs> another week? <boy? laughs> <laughs> Do you, so Tamika? That uh, you know, I'm sort of hearing the frustration in your voice as you're sort of as you're saying that. Do you think that, like, um, you know, is, and even thinking then beyond that, you know, that um, those standalone providers. If we look at um some of the larger peak providers, you know, there's some stuff that I've been very dismayed by. Um, in terms of particularly, you know, regulation and red tape and those kind of things is, you know, d- do you see much hope for that to sort of change or do we need to look at it from from a broader policy context? Is this more, more an issue where we just need to um, get a good government on side to sort of try and, you know, sidestep some of that that, that
3: yeah. quite
0: powerful advocacy? From every, uh, We should say, you know, 47% of the sector is is privately operated. Now, not all of those are members of a particular peak body, but that's, that's a large part of the sector who could have quite a powerful voice
3: yeah it is and and it and it is frustrating and and sometimes I'm just lost for words with some of the advocacy that happens um, on on their part, but I think like I do have hope because I know that within within the people that they represent, there are a lot of union members and there are a lot of people who um who can um, be influential in making in making their point on why it's important that we have the NQF? But I I, I do think it needs to come from a broader policy um, because again, I'm just I, I get so dumbfounded. You wouldn't have that happening in your formal education settings, like you wouldn't have. A peak body, um, like giving airtime to people, d- dismissing Gonski or. Yeah, I guess you would, but it's just. I, I don't know what the solution to that is. And yeah, I just. I don't know what the solution to that is, but.
0: It's a big challenge, yeah. Well, I, I feel it, like it I've,
3: does need to it does need to be challenged, but and I think it needs to be challenged by a government that is, um, that has a policy agenda that is not their policy agenda, and uh, yeah.
0: Well, I feel I feel like I've put you under the under the grill there for a little while, to me. So I'm going to give you the opportunity to turn it around. So I'm going to say, um. Is there something you wish, you know, maybe staunch and advocates for for the not-for-profit sector, such as probably, you know, all three of us on the other end of the microphone, is there, you know, coming from from your perspective, is there... Is there something we should be thinking about differently in terms of the way we advocate for particular things? Is there a sort of a message I guess you have from from the other side of that divide, which I don 't think necessarily do think of it as a divide, but you know I often reflect on um and I've had conversations with individuals where I feel like I do have to be careful in how I articulate some of my approaches. I do fundamentally believe that you know not for profit is the best ethical model but but there are fantastic people doing incredible work in the for-profit space. So this is where it gets turned around a bit. Is there stuff you is, do? You think that advocacy could be done differently from our perspective, or are there things you sort of wish we we articulated better or knew more about the the for-profit sector?
3: Look, I just think um, I just think that as long as you're giving voice to people who are doing good things, then. You, you know, as long as you've got that balance, I don't think that there is a problem because, like, at the end of the day, as you said, it it has to be ethical. You know, we always bring it back to profit for purpose. Like, what are the children? Like, what are the outcomes? What are the children getting out of it? But, but um, I, I think there is still that real lack of unity to that real lack of unity around. Um, shared goals and I think when we had the big steps launch to the 10-year 10 10-point 10 plan um, it was fantastic to see all of those people in the room um, listening to what, what we had to say around that 10-point plan and and really putting that call out for unity because at the end of the day um, if, if we aren't united on some shared goals moving forward, then we have a, a real problem. And there's always been that sense of divide within early childhood because we haven't got that, um, well, from the outside, it, it doesn't look like we have that overarching unity like the education sector has. And that's because we have so many um So many different providers, and we don't have, you know, those Catholic um, state and private, you know, schools are just in that bucket. Whereas we have a bucket that has so many um, holes in it. I I think (laughs) I could explain it as, uh, and and there are a lot of fingers trying to poke the different holes to stop the water coming out, but we need to have a more unified approach. And And, and because people have different ideas and different ideals, um, it does make it very, very hard. But I think we do such a disservice to ourselves by not unifying in a better way, um, even if we are from different peaks and organisations and, and different you know, from corporates and community and all different parts of the sector, um, we have to find a better way to unite more. And I, you know, I always come back to um, our union, United Voice. You know, when we think of the schools, we think of the Education Union. We think of the Gonski campaign. We, you know, we've got the Fair Funding Now campaign. Um, you know, we have the Big Steps campaign. But I, I. Um, just think that people are still—it's like they're they're still hesitant to jump on board the bus and to and to be part of that campaign. And I'd I'd really love to to um, be able to work on that and for everyone to be able to work on that because I think at the end of the day, if we are not united in our message, we're just doing ourselves a dis service and we're going to be on this hamster wheel for a bit longer than what's needed whereas a lot of other sectors have united and and have moved a lot forward a lot quicker whereas we're just lagging behind a little bit and I think we can we can all do a better a better job of that.
0: Wonderful. Well, that's a quite quite a positive note to end on, Tamika. I think um, we really appreciate your time in in tackling this 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 question with us tonight. Um, where can people find you online? I should say, I I I'm a I'm not a huge Facebook user, but I've liked your the, the Academia Laxes uh, page on facebook and it's actually i don't know whether you want this necessarily shared beyond the community people who actually access your center but um i enjoy it because you you post a lot there about um the big steps campaign and it's actually a really good space for advocacy on 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 the side it's not not something i see a huge amount of of individual centers really promoting you know big steps and a whole range of other advocacy initiatives so um are you okay for people to, to look you up on there
3: absolutely not a not a problem at all and um and I love to have, um, have a say on Twitter as well, but, but it, I'm more than happy for people to follow us on Cardinia Lakes because we do share a lot of what we do within the community and a lot of it is a, a lot wider than that as well.
0: God, imagine being one of those sad people who talks about early childhood on Twitter, Tameka. Uh, oh, those people. I know. I know. <laughs> you
3: know, because between 3 right. and 5... What's wrong with us? <laughs> I know. Well, we've, we've all got a bit of time between 3 and 5 a.m.
0: <laughs> Peak tweeting
3: time. Oh,
0: <laughs> all right, well, Tamika, thank you so much for joining us. To um, know all the best with Cardinia Lake, and obviously all the best with you know the Big Steps campaign and all the the advocacy you're working on there. Thank you very much for joining the Early Education Show.
3: Thanks for having me.
0: You have been listening to the Early Education Show, hosted by Lisa Bryant, Leanne Gibbs, and Liam McNicholas, and produced by Liam McNicholas. Find us online at earlyeducationshow.com And while you're there, it would be great if you could hit the Support the Show tab where you can become a patron of the show and support us for as little as $1 a month. We really appreciate it. Get in touch with us at earlyedushow at gmail.com or on Facebook and Twitter with the username earlyedushow. If you're enjoying the show, please leave us a rating and review on the Apple Podcast Store. This really helps other people find the show. See you next time.